Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we saw how the Icelandic Commonwealth was torn to pieces by the leading clans of the island. They were so engaged in their internal power struggle that they didn't notice, didn't care about, or even exploited Norwegian attempts to take control over all of them. The period known as the Age of the Sturlungs, named after the most powerful of the Icelandic clans, ended with a Norwegian triumph. In the year 1262, the Althing, the Assembly of Free Men in Iceland, approved handing over their sovereignty to Norway, ending more than two centuries of Icelandic independence. It would be almost 700 years before they regained it. Today, we'll focus on one of the central figures in the drama of the end of the Icelandic Commonwealth, a man who was mentioned a number of times in the last episode, but who wasn't properly introduced or had his context explained. I plan to make up for that today. The man I refer to is, of course, the King of Norway, Håkon Håkonsson. During his more than 40 years on the throne, Norway experienced something of a medieval golden age, and the kingdom reached its greatest size when Håkon managed to incorporate both Iceland and Greenland in his realm. Episode 44, Peak Norway. Our main source of knowledge about King Håkon comes from a saga written about him soon after his death. On the one hand, that means that the author had access to a lot of valuable written documentation, as well as a plethora of people who remembered Håkon and what he had done. But on the other hand, the saga was commissioned by Håkon's son and successor, and it's glaringly obvious that it was written to glorify the ruling dynasty. That means that the saga can reasonably suspected of glossing over any and all mistakes or character flaws that Håkon might have had. So keep that in mind as we go along, and you find yourself thinking that this King Håkon guy seems to have been a splendid person, almost too splendid to be true. The author, by the way, was a guy from Iceland called Sturla Thorardsson, and who was the nephew of none other than the famous poet and politician Snorri Sturluson, who we met last week. Sturla arrived in Norway in 1263 to try and convince King Håkon that any and all negative reports about Sturla that the king may have received from his agents in Iceland were complete nonsense. But when he got there, he found out that the king was away on business in Scotland. We'll get back to that business later in this episode. Since the king wasn't around, Sturla offered his services to his son and co-ruler, Magnus, and that's how he eventually ended up writing the saga of Håkon Håkonsson. Hopefully, you haven't forgotten that Norway had been plagued by a century-long civil war, fought between the Birkebeiner and the Bogler from the mid-12th century to the mid-13th century. If that doesn't ring a bell, you can always go back and listen to episodes 36, 37 and 38, which covered that period in some detail. When we last left Norway, the fighting had ended, but the country was divided. In the southeast, the Bogler king Philip Simonsson ruled, and the west was in the hands of the Birkebeiner. The Birkebeiner king Sverre had died in 1202, and his son Håkon had reigned for less than two years until he died, possibly poisoned by his stepmother, Queen Margaret. The new Birkebeiner king was called Inge, but his authority was challenged by his brother Håkon the Crazy, who commanded the army. These three, Philip, Inge and Håkon the Crazy, basically ruled one part each of Norway, and even though Inge theoretically was the king over the whole country, neither one of the other two respected his claim. 
It was into this chaotic situation that young Hokon was born in the spring of 1204. He was the son of none other than the dead, possibly poisoned, King Hokon and his mistress Inga, and as such he had a claim to the crown according to Norwegian custom. A better claim, in fact, than all of the three men who ran the place when he was born. Young Hokon was born in a part of Norway that was under Bogler control, and since he was the posthumous son of a Birkebeiner king, that meant he was in mortal danger if his father's enemies were to find him. And Bogler men were trying to hunt baby Hakon down and kill him, but loyal supporters of his father's took the boy and set off for Trondheim, where King Inge ruled. They had to leave quickly, and so they set out for the coast in the middle of the winter, on skis. They managed to cross the mountains and pass through a blizzard, and eventually brought Hakon to safety at King Inge's court in Trondheim. The saga claims that Hakon was an intelligent child, and whether he was or not, he was at least educated. It could be that the chronicler was trying to paint a flattering picture of young Hakon, or maybe he just made the oh-so-common mistake of confusing intelligence and education. Because you see, Hakon was the first Norwegian king to get any kind of formal education at all. At the age of seven, he was sent to school in Bergen under the care of Jarl Hakon the Crazy. When the Jarl died, the not-crazy boy Hakon continued his education in Trondheim, together with King Inge's illegitimate son, Guthorm. The two boys grew up together and were treated more or less the same by the king and his court. After Hakon the Crazy's death in 1214, King Inge depended increasingly on his half-brother Skuli, who soon more or less took over the business of governing the kingdom. And when King Inge died in 1217, when he was still in his mid-thirties, Skule wasn't particularly keen on giving up the power he had attained. The problem for Skuli was that the majority of the Birkebeiner weren't interested in having him as king. They wanted the young Hakon, the son of possibly poisoned King Hakon and the grandson of King Svere, kings many of them had served in the past and whose memory they treasured. And, without consulting with Skuli, some of these Birkebeiner went and picked up the 13-year-old Hakon from school in Trondheim and brought him to the Thing, where he was proclaimed king of Norway. Later that year, other things throughout the country joined in and proclaimed Hakon king. But this didn't mean that the question of succession had been settled. Far from it. Guttorm, Inge's illegitimate son who'd grown up together with Hakon, made some half-hearted attempt of claiming the crown, even though he backed off fairly soon. The biggest obstacle on Hakon's way to the top job remained Skuli. On his deathbed, King Inge had promoted Skuli to Jarl and commander of the king's bodyguard. But Skuli wanted more. He wanted the crown for himself. The church supported Skuli's claim, not least because Hakon was the illegitimate son of Hakon III and the church was not keen on having a bastard on the throne. Some of Skuli's supporters even tried to undermine Hakon's claim to the throne by spreading a rumour that he wasn't Hakon's son after all, and that his mother Inga had made up the whole story to get a ticket out of obscurity when one of her lovers died. But Inga insisted on Hakon's parentage, and she even agreed to a trial by ordeal to prove that her son was of royal stock. The trial was held in Bergen in 1218, and she actually passed. This not only strengthened Hakon's general claim to the throne, but also made the church more favourable to his candidacy. After all, God had allowed Hakon's mother to pass a trial by ordeal, so maybe the boy had celestial backing. Faced with this development, 
Scully yielded and gave up open resistance to Hawkins' accession to the throne. Officially, at least, he did so because fighting over the crown would have threatened to split the Birkebeiner party in two, making them vulnerable to renewed Bogler attacks. But an explanation that's just as likely is that Scully simply realized that his chances of winning were too slim. What he gained instead was a pretty good deal. Scully was declared co-regent with Hakon, and it was decided that he would be in charge of the country during Hakon's minority. After all, he was still only 13. Chances are that Scully never really planned on accepting Hakon as king, and that he thought that he'd have plenty of opportunities to get rid of the boy before any actual power sharing would become relevant. It wouldn't have been the first time a child destined to rule died leaving all the power in the hands of a more or less grief-strucken co-king. It was about this time, at the very beginning of Håkon's reign, that the fame of Snorri Sturluson reached Norway, and Håkon and Skuli, uh, probably most Skuli, decided to invite the Icelandic lawspeaker to Norway in order to convince him to become their tool in bringing Iceland under Norwegian rule. By the way, I don't want to imply here that Skuli would have been a bad king, or that he wasn't good at his job. On the contrary, he seems to have been quite a capable leader, for instance, when the Bagler king Philip Simonsen died in 1217, Skuli showed his diplomatic skills by bringing about a reconciliation between the Birkebeiner and the Bagler and reuniting the kingdom again. That was no small achievement, and it wasn't really Skuli's fault that some of the Bagler side just weren't ready to accept that they had to live under a Birkebeiner king from now on, and instead rallied behind a guy called Sigurd Ribung who they claimed was the grandson of King Magnus Erlingsson, the first Scandinavian king ever to be crowned, if you remember him. They started their rebellion in 1219, but it never really got off the ground. They failed to get the broad popular support in eastern Norway that the Bogler camp had traditionally enjoyed, and in 1223, Skuli even captured their pretender, Sigurd Ribung. That same year, 1223, Håkon turned 18, and the great and the good of Norway were called to Bergen to settle the issue of Hawkins' legitimacy as king once and for all. All bishops, jarls, and many other prominent Norwegians participated. But if Skuli had hoped that he'd be able to wrest the throne from Hawkon just as he was coming of age, he was mistaken. By now, the church has come around and supported Hawkins' claim to the throne, and that proved decisive in the deliberations of the council. Needless to say, Skuli was not happy about this result. It's true that he was given the northern third of Norway to govern more or less independently as compensation, but he had expected more. Two thirds more, to be precise. He had lost the support of the church to a bastard, and to make matters worse, it had happened just after he had crushed the Bogler rebellion and captured their pretender. It's a little unclear what exactly happened next, but in 1224, Sigurd Ribung managed to escape Skuli's captivity, and he returned to eastern Norway, where he resumed his fighting against King Håkon. Did he actually manage to escape, or did Skuli let him go, hoping that a renewed Bogler insurrection would destabilize Håkon's reign, or even have Håkon killed? Who knows? What we do know is that Skuli wasn't particularly forthcoming in aiding Håkon when the king set out to put down the renewed Bogler rebellion. But despite his youth and Skuli's unwillingness to help, Håkon was victorious and Sigurd Ribung died in 1226. After Sigurd's death, the Bogler rallied behind yet another pretender, this time Håkon the Crazy's son, Knut, 
but he was beaten within two years. Knut renounced any claims to the throne and would eventually go on to marry Skuli's daughter. After Knut's defeat, the Bogler party was finally finished and they would never again rise to claim the throne of Norway. But that didn't spell the end of Haakon's troubles. Not even close. The relationship between the king and his co-regent, Jarl Skuli, had never been particularly good and this last war against the Bogler hadn't done anything to improve the situation. So far, they had solved it by an implicit agreement where each one stayed in his part of the country, leaving the other one alone. It had gone so far as the two who officially were ruling together were now issuing proclamations in their own name only, omitting the mention of that other guy, and they both even maintained official connections with other countries, creating a system of two parallel foreign policies. Already last time we saw how Snorri Sturluson managed to take advantage of the situation by going home to Iceland with the help of Jarl Skuli, despite King Haakon expressly ordering him to stay in Norway. It doesn't take a genius to realize that such an arrangement can only last so long. One tried and tested way to bring two power centers together in this age of personal leadership was through marriage, and Hawkins advisors counseled him to marry Scully's daughter, Margaret, which he went ahead and did in 1225. The alliance didn't have the desired effect though, and groom and father-in-law were not brought closer together by these new family ties. Not that they didn't try. After the wedding, the king and the jarl did make an effort and spent more time together, and presumably with Margaret, the daughter of one of them and the wife of the other. But ultimately, these attempts to reconcile the two proud and ambitious men only made things worse. If the saga is to be believed, the relationship between the king and the jarl was ruined by the intrigues and slander by conspiring men who wanted to pull Scully and Hawken apart but I think that it's just as plausible to assume that they had different and conflicting political interests which couldn't be papered over with a marriage contract. In a last-ditch attempt to mend fences, King Hakon even made Jarl Skuli a duke in 1237, making him the first Norwegian with that title. But at the same time, he showed very clearly that he didn't trust his new duke by not giving him a specific territory, a dukedom, to be the duke of. And that was probably for the best, because not even a new fancy noble title could stop what I'm sure you already realize is coming. In 1239, Scully just dropped all pretense and stopped pretending that he was willing to accept Håkon as his superior. Instead, he had himself declared king of Norway. When King Håkon got the news, he gathered his forces to set out and crush his ducal father-in-law. But before he did, he wanted to secure the succession in case he wouldn't survive the fighting. So in April 1240, he had the Things and Trondheim and Bergen declare his and Margaret's seven-year-old son co-king. That way, it would be clear to everyone who they should rally behind as their next king if Håkon wouldn't make it. By the way, can you guess what the boy was called? Why, Håkon, of course, and since King Håkon's father also was called Håkon, that meant that Norway at this point had not one, but two kings called Håkon Håkonsson. Even Scandinavians, with a higher than average tolerance level for confusing and similar royal names, thought that this was a bit much, so the adult King Håkon is often called Håkon the Old and his son Håkon the Young. Anyway. The precaution of making Håkon the Young his co-king turned out to be superfluous, because it didn't take Håkon the Old long to put down the rebellion instigated by his co-ruler's grandfather. Skuli 
did enjoy some support in Trendelag in and in the east, but it wasn't enough to measure up against King Haakon's forces. The two sides battled it out at Oslo later in 1240, and Haakon's side was victorious. Skule and his son Peter escaped by fleeing the battlefield and hiding in the forest. But Haakon's men were onto them, and the two fugitives eventually tried to find safety at a monastery in Trøndelag. But their opponents showed that they still hadn't forgotten all the tricks from the old Viking playbook, and proceeded to set fire to the monastery, forcing Skule and his son to come out. And, when they did, Haakon's men cut them down, definitely ending the rebellion. The death of Skule and his son Peter is considered the official and definitive end to the Norwegian Civil War era that had been going on for over a hundred years. Haakon was now the undisputed king of Norway and there was no one left to challenge his authority. Once the dust had settled and the last usurper had been dispatched, Haakon could finally focus all his attention on being a proper king, like all the other kings in Europe. He did this in several ways. He initiated a bunch of monumental building projects meant to display his royal status and power. His construction frenzy was primarily focused on Bergen, which was medieval Norway's most important city and de facto capital. The most impressive building at the royal estate in Bergen was the so-called Haakon's Hall, one of the largest and grandest buildings in Norway at the time. Not only was it made of stone, but it had more than one floor. In fact, it was a three-story building. Very impressive. King Haakon also wanted to spread culture and literature in Norway, or at least among the Norwegian elites, and to that end he invested in the translation of European works. Some of these were religious texts, but many were romantic tales of heroic knights and fair maidens that were popular at the French and English courts at the time. That way, the tales of King Arthur and Tristan and Isolde were made available in Old Norse. This royal interest in literature also led to the production of some local Norwegian literature in the same genre. But the big stone buildings and chivalric literature can only get you so far. What Haakon really needed to be accepted as a real king was a big, fat coronation. But for that to happen, he needed the approval of the Vatican. It's true that the church in Norway had accepted him as king back in 1223, but the Pope still had not. The issue for Pope Gregory IX wasn't only Haakon's status as a bastard, even though that obviously didn't help. The Vatican also had a long-standing beef with Haakon's family, since his grandfather, King Sverre, had fought against church power in Norway, and, among other things, introduced a system of local episcopal appointments without any papal influence. If you want to refresh your memory regarding King Sverre's conflict with the church, you can go back and listen to episode 38, Birkebener and Bagler. In order to win the Pope's approval, Haakon granted the church concessions and privileges to strengthen its autonomy. He also declared that only his own legitimate sons, born by Margaret Skulistater, would have the right to inherit the throne. That meant that only Haakon the Young and his younger brother, Magnus, remained in the line of succession. Haakon's older sons, born to a mistress out of wedlock before he married Margaret, were no longer eligible due to their illegitimate status. Haakon was so desperate for papal recognition that he even swore an oath that he'd go on a crusade. Since Haakon was an experienced sailor with a big and impressive fleet, the King of France, Louis IX, 
asked him to take command over a crusader fleet that would sail to the Holy Land. But King Hakon wasn't so keen on crusading quite so far away and declined Louis's offer using the excuse that Norwegians were far too rowdy to go on such a mission together with the refined French. Instead, he chose to fight some local pagans in northern Norway. Much more convenient, less travel and less risk of being usurped while you're away on a multi-year trip abroad. And it was lucky that he turned down the French king, because Louis's crusade turned out to be an unmitigated fiasco. The crusader forces were soundly beaten and Louis himself was even captured by the Egyptians. He would only return home after six years and the handling over of an enormous ransom. Still, Louis didn't learn his lesson and set out on yet another crusade where he eventually died. For his efforts, Louis was canonized after his death and is now known as Saint Louis. Anyway, back to Hawkon. Despite his best efforts to placate the Pope by crusading, erecting stone buildings and excluding his illegitimate sons from the line of succession, Pope Gregory IX was unrelenting. But no Pope lives forever, and in 1246 Hakon finally got the new Pope, Innocent IV, to recognize him as the legitimate King of Norway. What had done the trick, however, wasn't Hakon's building projects, his promise to kill pagans or his tinkering with the order of succession but rather his support for the Pope in his conflict with the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II. So in 1247, after 30 years as king, Håkon finally got his coronation. The Pope sent a cardinal to Norway to confirm the ecclesiastical recognition of Håkon, and he arrived in June 1247. King Håkon had pulled out all the stops, and when the boat carrying the cardinal approached Bergen, it was met by the royal ship with its golden prow, 25 pairs of rowers made sure the ship could hold good speed, and not only the king but also several senior members of his administration and his whole bodyguard unit were on board. The coronation itself took place in the Cathedral of Bergen on July 29th, which is a highly symbolic date in the Norwegian royal calendar since it's the feast day of St. Olav. Clearly, Håkon wanted everything to be perfect. Still, things could have gone really wrong even at that very last moment. You see, the Pope wanted King Håkon to swear a coronation oath, the same oath that Magnus Erlingsson, the first Norwegian king to ever be crowned, had sworn at his coronation in 1163. But Håkon flat out refused, saying that he'd rather continue without a crown if he had to haggle for it. It could have developed into a really awkward scene if the papal representative hadn't backed down and agreed to crown Håkon without any oath. So it all went well, and the party afterwards must have been epic. In any case, it lasted for days. Since it almost always rains in Bergen, a passageway covered with red and green cloth, had been set up all the way between the cathedral and the hall where the prominent guests were to feast afterward. The guest list was almost as long as the passageway. The newly crowned king had invited the cardinal, the archbishop, five other bishops, Håkon's sons, Håkon and Magnus, as well as a whole bunch of other senior clerics and aristocrats. Even the most prominent farmers from each region in the kingdom had been invited as had a whole host of representatives from foreign lands. And the foreign guests were no afterthought. The relations to foreign powers were important to King Håkon, and he conducted a very active foreign policy, trying to further Norwegian interests wherever he could. 
In the last episode, we saw how he maneuvered to take control over Iceland, but he didn't limit his diplomatic efforts to the immediate neighborhood. Håkon entered into negotiations with King Alfonso X of Castile about sending the Norwegian fleet to assist in a proposed crusade against Morocco. For a while in the middle of the 13th century, there was a blossoming alliance between Norway and Madrid, and Håkon even sent his daughter Christina down to marry one of King Alfonso's younger brothers. But her death four years later, without leaving any children, closed the book on Håkon's Iberian adventures, and he never did send his fleet to participate in any wars in North Africa. Håkon's relations with Novgorod in the east were less cordial, since the Norwegians and the Russians disagreed over territory in the northernmost bit of Scandinavia, and over who had the right to tax the Sami people living there. If you remember from episode 42, Swedish Finland, the Swedes also bickered with the Russians over where the border between their respective realms should go. A timely Mongol invasion weakened the Russian bargaining position, and Håkon could push the border of Norway further north and east than otherwise seemed like the likely outcome of that dispute. Another noteworthy international development during the reign of Håkon was that he allowed the Hanseatic League to establish itself in Bergen. Håkon tried to use his relations with the North Germanic Hanseatic cities in his anti-Danish policy that we'll get to in a moment, but Norway was also increasingly dependent on wheat from the continent provided by the Hanseatic merchants. We'll have reason to return to the Hanseatic League in a future episode, because they played a not insignificant role in Scandinavian politics in the Middle Ages. But for now, let's focus on Håkon's relations with his Scandinavian neighbors. Last time, we talked in depth about how he was instrumental in forcing Iceland, and by extension also Greenland, to accept Norwegian control. But as I just hinted at a moment ago, he also conducted a rather aggressive policy against Denmark as well. After the death of King Valdemar the Victorious, Denmark was once again rocked by turmoil brought on by fighting over the crown. We'll get into the details of that struggle in a future episode, but for now suffice it to say that King Håkon noticed how Denmark was weakened by the fighting and he was looking for a way to exploit it. He tried to expand his kingdom southward into the northern Danish region of Halland, along the western coast in modern-day Sweden. In 1253, Håkon went ahead and claimed Halland for himself, using the pretext that Norwegian ships had been looted while sailing through Danish waters. The Danes, unsurprisingly, were not convinced by this claim and didn't have any plans to hand over the region to the King of Norway. So in 1256, Håkon decided that it was time to make his formidable fleet consisting of more than 300 earn its pay and sent it to invade Halland. His son and co-king, Håkon the Young, participated in this invasion, pillaging and burning along the coast of Halland throughout 1256. The campaigning spilled over into 1257, but in the spring that year, Håkon the Young became sick and decided that it would be best to return to Oslo. But he never got that far. In Tunsberg, at the mouth of the Oslo Fjord, he had to take a break at a monastery. There, on May 5th, 1257, the heir to the Norwegian throne died. Following Håkon the Young's death, Håkon the Old signed a peace agreement with the King of Denmark, officially renouncing his claim to Halland and negotiated a marriage between the new heir, his only remaining legitimate son, Magnus, and Princess Ingeborg, the niece of the King of Denmark. I say officially renouncing because the main reason for Håkon to marry his son off to a Danish princess was to be able to renew Norwegian claims to Danish territory. But we'll get deeper into that mess 
next time. King Hawkins' foreign policy vis-à-vis the British Isles was a bit like his attitude towards Scandinavia, ally with one kingdom to fight another. In the British case, Hawkins cultivated warm and friendly relations with England, whereas he was aggressive in his dealings with Scotland. The first ever trade agreement with Norway and England that we know of was negotiated early in Hawkins' reign, and he kept up a chummy correspondence with King Henry III of England. Hawkins and Henry had a lot in common. They were almost the same age, and they had become kings very young, within a year of each other. They also shared a common enemy, Scotland, and nothing unites as much as a common enemy. As you may remember from our early episodes on the Viking Age, Vikings from Norway had conquered and settled various islands in the North Sea off the coast of Scotland, such as the Faroe, Shetland and Orkney Islands, the Hebrides and the Isle of Man. Thanks to the importance of Bergen as a hub for their trade, the Faroe and Shetland Islands were closely tied to Norway, and Hawkins' control over them wasn't really called into question. But the other islands were much closer to Scotland, not only geographically, but also economically. And lately, just as Hawkins was asserting his traditional rights to these islands, the King of Scotland was starting to think that these Norwegian possessions would fit better under his control. In 1261, King Alexander III of Scotland sent an ambassador to Norway demanding that Hawken hand over the Hebrides to Scotland. Of course, Hawken would have none of it and refused this demand. When the Norwegian weren't cooperating, Alexander started to plan an invasion to conquer the Hebrides by force. But already in 1262, Scottish ships raided the islands. Hearing about this attack, Hawken was enraged. And since the war with Denmark had ended a few years earlier, his formidable fleet was currently free to be dispatched across the North Sea to drive home the message that there would be no territorial concessions to the Scots. Thank you very much. King Hawken and his formidable fleet left Bergen in July 1263. When they arrived in the Orkney Islands, they were joined by forces from the Hebrides and the Isle of Man who were loyal to Hawken. At this point, a Scottish envoy from Alexander showed up asking Hawken to enter into negotiations with his Scottish counterpart. Naturally, Hawken assumed that the Scots had been intimidated by his formidable fleet, so he agreed, hoping that he'd be able to achieve his aims without having to risk a battle. But it was all a trick. The Scottish side dragged out the negotiations long enough for the campaigning season of 1263 to end, which had been their goal all along. There was one minor skirmish in the fall, but Hawken retired to the Orkney Islands for the winter. But next year, as soon as the weather permitted it, he was going to attack and teach those insolent Scots a lesson. Unfortunately for Hawken, that was not to be. A few weeks after installing himself in the Bishop's Palace in Kirkwall, he fell ill and he died on December 16, 1263. On his deathbed, the king confirmed that he only had one surviving legitimate son, Magnus, and he would now succeed Hakon as king of Norway. Next time, we'll continue the story of this last surviving son of King Hakon Hakonsson. I do hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. 
Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.